This is Making Stitches and this time I'm sharing a couple of chats I've had with authors of books about sewing and the power that that skill can have. time when women's writings were rarely conserved, then actually because embroidery and the cloth that it was um, sewn on were so valuable in monetary terms, then women knew that they had a better chance of their embroideries being conserved because of their monetary value than their writings. One kid stood up and he looked at her and she could see like the wheels turning in his head. And he said, I can fix my pants. And I just knew when I heard that, I wanted to write about that. That moment of empowerment that comes with being able to do something for yourself. And I really feel that making is something really important for kids. And I wanted to tell his story. Hello and welcome to Making Stitches. I'm Lindsay, a lifelong crafter, crochet designer and journalist. With Making Stitches, I'm able to blend two of my passions, sharing people's stories and learning more about crafts and creativity. So far, this podcast has featured makers from across the globe and from a wide range of different craft disciplines as well. This time, I'm concentrating on the written word and featuring the authors of two books, both of which are about sewing, but that's where the similarities end. One is a new work of fiction aimed at children and telling the story of a young boy who learns to sew at a drop-in session at a library with his sister, who's very much the boss of his life. The other, an account of the social, emotional and practical legacy of sewing, needlework and embroidery, which became a Sunday Times bestseller. I'll start with The Threads of Life by Claire Hunter. I stumbled across it by chance while looking for a gift at a bookshop. The beautiful deep pink cover featuring intricately embroidered animals caught my eye and before I knew it, it was coming home with me. Once I sat down to read it, I couldn't put it down. The book is part historical documentary with snippets of the author Claire's memoirs woven in between. There are tales of the Bayer tapestry, needlework rolls taken on by injured soldiers from the World War I trenches, Mary Queen of Scots embroidery and the story cloths from East Asia. There is so much in this book that just goes to show how important needlework is as a form of therapy, a form of protest and a valuable way to document the stories of generations who've long gone, especially those who had no other way of getting their voices heard. I knew straight away I had to ask Claire to come on the podcast to speak about her work and her fascinating life. I hope you enjoy hearing her story as much as I did. First of all, Claire, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me for making stitches. I've just... Not at all, Lindsay. I've just finished your book, it's amazing. Oh, (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, To anybody who's listening who hasn't come across you and your work before, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, uh, I'm Scottish, as you can probably gather from my accent. Um, And basically, uh, I learned sewing when I was young. My mum taught me and I've always sewn. 
but in the 1980s I started to do much larger scale work and make banners and I decided to set up a community sewing business called uh, Needleworks which is really to get local people particularly those involved in marginalized communities involved in in showing it showing really their skill their imagination and creativity through creating large public wall hangs and uh, Needleworks, as it was called, ran for a decade. We worked with all sorts of groups in all sorts of situations, in hospitals and schools, in shopping malls, etc. And um, uh, and I carried on um, sewing since then, again, to commission sometimes. And then laterally, I thought, you know, I would like to write about this. And because over my life, because I'd also created exhibitions, I had gathered up lots of information about the reasons why people sew, because often that's not recorded in the thousands of books that are about needleworks, about needlework, then there's um, lots of things about technique, uh, but there's very rarely mention of what is the motive, the purpose that people have in terms of spending so much time and talent in sewing something you know, extraordinary. And so that's what I was interested. I had been exploring that and I thought, actually, I'll turn that into a book. And so my research began because although I thought I knew a lot, when you actually start to write, you'd realise you know very little. Well, you clearly put a heck of a lot of research into it because it's so detailed and covers such a wide range of history and countries all over the world. Uh, can, can you give me maybe just a couple of... Uh, your favourite little sort of snippets of, of stories that you've included? Oh, there's so many snippets. That's a very cruel question to ask, <laughs> because as you say, you know, Threads of Life covers, you know, across centuries and across cultures, across geographies, and again, across motives in terms of why people so. So I suppose um, there's there are some that are more poignant than others. Um, uh, John Crask, the Norfolk fisherman, who became um, uh, disabled um, and basically took to his bed, but then his wife introduced him to sewing. And being a fisherman, he then sewed his sea. And there's these wonderful embroideries that he did, that because he wasn't a trained embroiderer, have all the zest and freedom of somebody who's just discovering the materials themselves and using them to evoke something that was in his heart. Uh, and then you can go across to Chile, um, when it was at its worst time of of um, repression and, and poverty, when the women in Santiago, in the shantytown of Santiago, uh, used little patchwork pictures to smuggle out the stories of, of local community damage, of what warfare was like and what was happening to them. And, uh, and it was those little patchworks which in a sense were minuscule war documentaries that then alerted the, to the west to the plight that the people of Chile were in so those are two that are you know completely different but in in separate ways have got power absolutely and that there is a theme throughout the book that that stitching embroidery and sewing of various types are used as like an act of defiance or a way of documenting a person's story to let other people know. That's right, used as a voice, particularly by those people who um, have been um, 
either forbidden to have a voice like the slaves in, in America uh, who were forbidden to read and write and so basically um, managed through a wonderful uh, seamstress Harriet Powers managed to conserve their both their African visual traditions through quilt making and also to to um, explore themes and stories of escape as well as loss. So you've got that kind of where people have used a voice. Obviously, women through time have used needlework in order to um, uh, proclaim um, who they are and what it is that matters to them. You've got Mary Queen of Scots, our own Scottish Queen, who when she was in captivity in England for 19 years, turned to embroidery because her letters were censored, her visitors were vetoed, and so she had very little access to other people and for other people to hear her testimony. And of course, her story was being written or rewritten rather by her detractors, her enemies. And so she used her embroidery to tell her truth. It's incredible. And I believe you've gone on to write another book exclusively about Mary, Queen of Scots, haven't you? I have, because when I wrote about Mary in Threads of Life, you know, in the chapter called Power, then I just became fascinated by how much material you know, original material that existed. So there were all the treasurer's accounts, which are basically like her Amazon purchase list during the years of her reign in Scotland, which tell about the fabric and thread and what clothes, etc. She was buying what kind of fabric um, was involved, what the, what the colour was, where it had come from. So there were all those detailed accounts, as well as her infantries, which said what textiles she had in terms of both interior wool hangs or other kinds of interior cloth, and also her clothes. And at times, her survey, Sarah de, de Comte, who was her valet de chambre, then had put in little annotations to see where she had maybe gifted a dress to one of her women, or where she had taken one of her mother's wall hangings and, and reinstated it in one of the palaces to reassert her Mary Queen of Scots own female lineage. So uh, I just became fascinated by what was available and I hadn't known much about that. And I thought, well, if I don't know much about that and I've been involved in researching textiles for so long, so long then maybe lots of other people don't either. And so I thought it was worth turning into a book. Uh, and it turned out not so much to be a book about Mary's textiles, but actually about a book about the agency of women in the 16th century and how they used textiles that they displayed or that they gifted, and also the textiles they themselves made through embroidery, how they used that as a form of communication and asserting their presence at court. That's incredible, because it kind of, it also, it gives their life uh, meaning beyond the time that they're alive, doesn't it? You know, That's right, and, and at a time when women's writings were rarely conserved, then actually because embroidery and the cloth that it was um, sewn on were so valuable in monetary terms, then women knew that they had a better chance of their embroideries being conserved because of their monetary value than their writings. Blimey. I mean, that that kind of issue is something that you've touched on such a lot in Threads of Life. I mean, you're, you're telling the stories of, of people whose, whose existence we wouldn't be aware of today had it not been for what they've left for us. And also people that we should know about who have been kind of airbrushed out of our our general knowledge, the, the likes of the wife of um, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, 
who I believe like was an inspiration indeed. to you. Indeed, and, I, and actually yesterday I just went to a, an auction in Edinburgh uh, at Lyon and Turnbull because they were uh, auctioning a piece of glass of school of art embroidery of the time of Margaret uh, Margaret Mac and Mac Macdonald, um, and it was done by Anne Macdeath, who was basically one of the um, uh, the people who ran the department of embroidery at the turn of the century at the art school. And this was a fantastic, beautiful collar in which she is photographed. There is a black and white photograph of her wearing this collar, which suddenly discovered in a market, picked up a box of textiles, bought it for, I don't know, but next to nothing, took it home and then thought, well, this is an interesting piece. That looks as if that might, you know, have more of a story. Took it to um, to somebody who knew about these things and said, oh, my goodness, that <laughs> is Anne Macbeth's collar. And so, yes, it was auctioned off and I went to, to be at the auction and very excitingly, you know, it was, it was you know, being, it went for £9,000 eventually, which really is a snip. Mm. But um, it, it was just nice to hear the excitement of the bidding going on as it went on sale. Absolutely. Well, you, you spoke yourself of your own discovery when you were you went into the attic of your husband's aunt and found a treasure trove of textiles um, yes. from, from years gone by. This is often yes. the case, and of isn't course, it? I, I, I was longing for the 1920s beaded beaded dresses, but there was none of that kind of finery because they were a very kind of you know frugal lift, living family. Um, but what they did have amongst a, a various kind of table linen, embroidered table linen, was this fantastic quilt made in tiny hand-stitched um, hexagon, hexagons and, um, and basically a very beautiful, delicate, printed um, damask cottons. And, um, and so when I lifted out, I mean, I just discovered that there were thousands and thousands of pieces in this one quilt. And of course, it was lovely we brought it home. And it's lovely to think that we sleep under, if you like, the work and the hands of other generations who have gone before in my in my husband's family. Um, you know, because you get that sense of of time passing, but a connection to those who have gone before through something like a quilt. Absolutely, and and quilts have been so important through through the generations, haven't they? From just they have poverty requiring people to make quilts through to to actual pieces of art. Yes, and of course, in each of those pieces, when people used to recycle old clothes or whatever in order to make patchwork quilts, then each of those small pieces had a particular memory of a particular person or a particular event. Um, and I love the story of. Um, Basically, when Mies uh, uh, von Bosevan, a, a Dutch woman in World War Two, she was um, basically a, 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 a you know anti-Nazi and was involved in resistance and the resistance movement, and she it was all discovered, and her husband was executed. It was sent to sorry, it was sent to a concentration camp, and her two sons were executed, and she herself was sent to Ravensbrück which was a notorious prison camp where thousands and thousands of women and children died. And she was there in terrible, terrible circumstances. And her friends smuggled in a small patchwork scarf, really as a talisman and as a way for her to keep her spirit going. And of course, it was a patchwork scarf that had been made up of these small pieces 
all of which has a resonance for her in a personal and intimate way. And it was that scarf that kept her going in terms of her belief that one day she would be free and one day she would do um, uh, something to restore um, the Netherlands where she came from to um, to its place. And indeed, she then in, uh, envisioned and created this movement called the Skirts of Life, which in post-war Holland, then women made these extraordinary patchwork skirts, according to her recommendation, which were um, skirts that through in each of their pieces told of their war experience but she said that the bottom, the hem of the skirt had to be bordered in little triangles that were added to year on, year on which told of what was happening now in terms of the birth of a child, a marriage celebration, a family get together that told of the positive things that were happening in people's life as an antidote to all the horror that had gone to before. And there's a beautiful picture of one of these skirts on your website, isn't there? Was, yes, there is. There I was is. just blown away. It was amazing. It's it's documenting history and so important. Mm. Going back to the quilting side of things, um, as I was reading your book and I saw the word Changi, it took me back to um, an episode of Making Stitches that featured in the first series of the podcast, which was um, about a quilt called Cat- uh, Creativity in Captivity, which mm. was created by, by makers during the coronavirus lockdowns. And that had been inspired by the Changi quilts, which you right. speak at length about within one of the chapters of your book. Um, and in particular, you meet the sun of um, a lady who was one of the prisoners there at Changi. What was that right. like to actually... Well, well John, uh, John uh, was an old friend. So I'd ah. known John since I was 18. And, um, and then I discovered, he, he, he said to me, that he remembered as a boy some reference his mother made so she had been in China, he knew that, as was his father, and some reference his mother had made to sewing. And I knew that one of the, there were three um, shiny quilts made um, uh, by women who were imprisoned in, the, in the Singapore, in the, in the, in the um, uh, camp there, and they made them ostensibly as blankets for um, people who were in the hospital there. But actually, their guards allowed them to do that because their their line that they were making these hospital carrying quilts actually disguised the fact that their intent was to sew patchwork quilts that in them had little messages that they could send to their husbands, fathers and sons who were in the joining camp but who they had no access to. And so three quilts were made. Uh, and, what it, and, and one of those quilts came back to England and is in the British Red Cross headquarters in London. So I said to John, well, why don't we go and see the quilt? And so we went to the British Red Cross, Red Cross headquarters and saw this quilt, which I can't remember how many little squares it has, but we kind of scanned the rows. And John thought that his mother had embroidered an angel and so we scanned the rows, and at first we couldn't find it. We were so busy, our eyes were being so distracted by all the other things on the quilt, that we, we, we just couldn't see it, and then we found it. And there was this little 
patchwork piece of a very, if you like, a very frivolous piece of a pretty little angel in pastel pretty colours and his mother's maiden signature. Um, and what amazed me was that in the dirt and humiliation and fear of prison life, that she should then choose to embroider, and in a sense, such a coquettish piece of work. Um, as I say, very pretty, very whimsical. But of course, by doing that, what she was doing was really reclaiming her femininity, mm. which was being eroded by the hardships that they were encountering day by day. For John, it was a revelation, because he then was discovering his mother as a young girl before marriage, four children, etc. And he said that when uh, he was growing up again, when he was young, he remembers there used to be reunions in, uh, he came from Edinburgh, in Edinburgh, of his parents and others who had shared with him that experience in Shangi. And he said there would be many a whiskey drunk and laughter would you know be would rise from the room where they were all gathered, and that's his memory of of that kind of act of survival is the laughter that it left that group with. Incredible, that is amazing. Incredible. Yes, you you speak throughout your book. You you have little sort of snippets of your own kind of memoirs throughout the book, yes. which is woven in with the with the stories of history. One amazing one I thought was when you ended up in China. And you had a, yes. a nocturnal visitation from a, a lady on Christmas <laughs> Eve. <laughs> yes, I was very lucky. I, I got a Winston Churchill Travel Fellowship to go to China in search of the story cloths of a particular Chinese minority clan called the Miao. And I had seen a Vietnamese fo- story cloth that came from a, a group called the Hmong. And when I looked into their history, I discovered that actually they had de- descended from the Miao. And so I really, my, my trip was to see if I could see if there were story cloths in the Miao that still survived within the Miao culture. And so I went off to southwest China, to a very remote area, which had only been opened up, this was in 1995, it had only been opened up uh, to the world seven years before that, so it was still very basic in terms of facilities and roads, well there weren't really roads, there were tracks, and I had a guide, and um, and basically on, on one of the excursions then I stayed overnight at, at a hotel for foreigners in one of the smaller towns, and it was Christmas Eve, and into my hotel room came a, 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 a Miao woman, and I knew she was a Miao because I studied their costumes, um, with a bundle on her back, which she then uh, sat down on, on, there were two beds in my room, sat down on, on one of the beds and unwrapped it. And inside was a treasure trove of Miao embroideries, just extraordinary jackets, baby carriers, different kinds of items and so basically she then showed me all, all these things and and as as she showed them then we as you do we became close without language but you become close and uh, eventually she began to do a, a dance that the meow do 
and so I showed her a gay Gordon's, which is a, a well-known Scottish dance. And so in the darkness, it was just surreal. The pair of us, just this intimate moment dancing together. I showed her pictures of Scotland and she found those fascinating but difficult to comprehend because they looked quite like where she was, but not. You know, mm. they have got got more conical hills, but it's still misty. It's still got pine trees. It looks very similar. And, of course, she puzzled over, because mine were of community banners, then they had people eating fish and chips and at Cayley's and all sorts of other things, and she puzzled over all those activities. And then, basically, uh, she then eventually, I, I understood that she actually wanted me to purchase something from... The, the, the pile of textiles and I chose a, um, a small sash that wasn't too flashy that was just you know and uh, after a note and she basically um, uh, you know, shook her head and then then pulled a jacket over my shoulders insisting that I also you know have that and um, and we just parted in that kind of real empathy of surprise friendships so often come when you're traveling, when you're more open mm. to people and to experiences. Uh, and with huge regret that such was our lives, that are different lives, that we wouldn't be able to continue that friendship. It was quite a poignant moment, very special, but, you know. Yes. Quite, quite sad yes. too. Oh. Yes. Now, one thing that you did reference in your book is that um, you'd, you'd gone to a, a creative writers group and had an experience with with a writer who'd come to speak to you and was more than slightly disparaging about the topic of your writing. <laughs> it's yes, similarly so, so, to the way that uh, so, that lots of people can be about sewing itself. Exactly. I mean, it was very interesting because when I began um, thinking of the book and, and started to write small ex, you know, small pieces with the idea of, of creating a book, I didn't know if I could create a book at that stage. And, you know, friends, would, even friends would say to me, you know, what are you up to? And I'd say, oh, but I'm writing a book about sewing. And they would shake their heads somewhat <laughs> ruefully, you know, and question me as to whether this was a good idea. And then I decided I should join a creative writing class because that would spur me on with my intent. And uh, I went to this creative writing class and basically, uh, as you do in these classes, they, they went round the, the people that were there and each person had to say what they were doing. So people were writing their crime novel, people were writing their memoir, etc, uh, etc. Et and it came to me and I said, oh, well, I'm writing a book about needlework, about the social, political and emotional significance of sewing. And he just looked amazed and just kind of you know, shook his head in in a in a, in a, in a in a pitying way and said oh yes i can i can just see me walking into that bookstore and asking for the best seller on the social uses of needlework and to my triumph ultimately the threads of life did become a sunday times bestseller <laughs> <laughs> you had the last laugh Yes, and when I went back the next week, the other person who ran the, the creative writing group said, so how's your knitting coming along? And I thought, at that stage, there's only only so many battles that I'm willing to fight. <laughs> Isn't it? Well, I'm so glad you persisted with it, because it's absolutely brilliant. I couldn't I couldn't put it down. It was absolutely and fair, gripping. And to be fair to the person who was running that first class, when it came to the bit that we had to read out a short extract, 
I was terrified, of course. I thought, well, I'm now going to be, you know, ridiculed even further. And I read out the little bit about finding the patchwork quilt. And when I came to the came to the end of it, there was that kind of silence, and I thought, "Oh no, here we go." And he said that was beautiful. He said I had no idea what was involved in the making of quilts, and now I, I know. And so I kind of felt, "Oh, actually, maybe writing this book is worthwhile after all." So in an odd way, he did spur me on. <laughs> Oh, well, like I said, I'm so glad he did because it was absolutely <laughs> riveting. And it's so nice that, you know, you've, you've been able to intersperse it with, with your own experiences because you've, yes. you've had such an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> More to come, I hope, Lindsay. Oh, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> Several more volumes are required. <laughs> so you've you've written the Threads of Life and you've written your book about Mary Queen of Scots. Do you have any further plans to 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 write about this field? There's a third book in the offing, um, because the publishers wanted me to do a third book. What that is yet, I cannot say uh, because it's not been finally decided. Fair enough. You'll leave us hanging, waiting. Hanging. <laughs> hopefully, there will be a third book. Yes. Fabulous. And aside from your writing, what are you working on at the moment? Are you still involved in sewing and needlework? Well, of course, basically I sew. So uh, I have a number of projects on the way. I've just finished making curtains for the front room. I've been making a little embroidered frieze of Scottish wildflowers as a kind of mantelpiece uh, frame. And um, uh, and, I, and, and I've got you know, the time at the moment before I start the research and writing again just to play around with fabric and threads. I love working with felt. And so uh, I'm looking forward to these winter months when I'll just be playing. That sounds no, like heaven. For no, good, for no good reason whatsoever. With nothing, no purpose, no social, emotional or political purpose whatsoever. Just for the, just for the joy of it, actually. Well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, thank you so much for your time and thank you Not for sharing time, such a wonderful book with us. It's It's been a real joy to, to read and to, to speak to you about it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Lindsay. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed speaking to Claire and I'm looking forward to reading her book on Mary, Queen of Scots in the near future. Now for a change of pace to some children's literature. Me and the Boss by Michelle Edwards and illustrated beautifully by April Harrison tells the story of a young boy called Lee who's very much in his big sister's shadow and learns to sew at a library drop-in session despite finding it difficult and at times rather painful as he pricks his finger he is determined to learn. Along with the story comes a sewing project for the young readers to have a go at themselves I spoke to the book's author, Michelle Edwards, about how the project had come about. I've been writing and illustrating kids' books for a long time. And, um, the, you know, I find stories wherever I go. And this story I found in a yarn store. And um, it's a little store in our town called Homec Workshop. And it's a place where um, I've also found community. And um, I was there one day with the owner and it was a break for both of us. And um, she started to tell me the story 
about a time when she taught um, an embroidery class to kids who were experiencing homelessness. And she said that um, one kid stood up and he looked at her and she could feel, she could see like the wheels turning in his head. And he said, I can fix my pants. And I just knew when I heard that, I wanted to write about that, that moment of empowerment that comes with being able to do something for yourself. And I really feel um, that making is, a, is something really important for kids. And, um, and I wanted to tell his story. And um, it took me a long time to figure out how to tell it, you know. Um, but um, eventually, I have a child who's a, a, a librarian, and she does maker spaces and things like that. So I thought, yeah, the library, that's where he has to go, you know. So how fabulous. So that's, yeah. Oh, it's interesting to hear that it's actually rooted in reality, though. Yeah, and you know, it doesn't always happen that way for me, but um, that that sense of like empowerment just kind of just it just wouldn't leave me alone. And it's interesting. Um, one of the people who used to be a co-owner of the store left and got a PhD in um, cultural anthropology, and her study was in uh, on Indian tailors. And, um, and I was talking to her about the book. She's the one who helped me um, put the project together at the back. And um, she said to me that often when she spoke to, you know, apprentices and stuff for Indian tailors, they would often say that the reason why they became a tailor was so they could fix their pants. And it was, it just sort of like, I forgot like how universal that need could be. You know, absolutely. So, for for people who obviously are unaware of your story at the moment, um, oh, can you tell me a little bit about the actual the, the thread of uh, you know the narrative thread? So the narrative thread that's that's a really good thing to stop and do. I always, I always assume that everybody knows the story. So the story is about um, Lee, and he um, is the younger brother, and he has an older sister named Zora. She's the boss. Wherever Zora goes, Lee goes. And um, as the story begins, they go to the library and they're going to learn embroidery. And of course, Zora is older and she's one of those kids who, you know, hears what's going on and she just immediately, she's got a flower going, she's got the leaf going. And Lee, well, it's not going so well. You know, he's poking himself, he's making these kinds of like little jab things. And he finally rolls it up and, and, and doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And they get home, and of course, the older sister shows off. But Lee keeps that, that, that roll, that embroidery thread and everything, he keeps it with him. And in the, during the night, when noises scare him and wake him up, he pulls it out. And when he does that, something happens. He perseveres. And, um, and that sets everything else in motion. And, and, and the rest you can find out by reading the book. Um, <laughs> I, I, will, I will add um, something to um, this that I think might um, be of interest. And that is that um, 
When I was searching for ways to tell the story, I was volunteering at um, a neighborhood school and I had kids in, um, you know, who were having trouble reading and, you know, just needed extra help. And one of the girls who is, uh, the book is also co-dedicated to, she was like, you know, one of these kids who like, you know, the chairs had rollers and she's like rolling around the room, right? Like, so, so I try to think of ways to rope them in. So I would let them draw or we would talk about like, what the what the characters were wearing because they all liked clothes and everything and um the the two other girls were drawing you know butterflies and flowers and all that and this girl was sitting there and she was like mark making you know it was like she was like uh, an abstract printmaker or something and the other girl said to her what are you making and she looked up and she said a half moon and I was so impressed by that. It would seem like such a poetic response and like so smart. Like, you know, I don't have to draw flowers and butterflies. The art is bigger than that. So that worked its way into the book. Absolutely. Oh, how amazing. And and are you a crafty person? You said you were in a yarn store and I can see you're wearing what looks like a hand-knitted sweater. Is yeah. Do you come from the, that background yourself? Yes. So I actually have a lifelong knitter and um, I guess it was about uh, maybe in the early 2000s, I started, um, I noticed that um, people were telling stories about their knitting lives and I thought, wow, I have so many stories. And I started, I first wrote for Knitty Magazine and I wrote a story about being a yarn courier um, when I was in college. And, you know, unlike children's books where kids don't often write you, like I suddenly got all this email, like people like mirrors are going, yeah, yeah. And, and it was, you know, it was the early days of our online thing. So I had a piece that I had written that used lion brand yarn for the shawls, you know, the healing shawls. And so they were having a contest. So, you know, to have people write about it and I, and I submitted it and they used it. And then I ended up um, developing a relationship with them. And for about 10 years, I wrote a monthly column on knitting and life for them and um, learned so much and had so much fun. And I would hear from knitters all over the world. And um, then I did a knitting book called A Knitter's Home Companion, which was a collection of, um, of illustrated essays patterns and recipes and i continued to write um you know, illustrated essays for um mdk modern daily knitting and so yeah so i'm involved in the maker's world on the on the apron of it as they say absolutely and did you did you pick up your craft as a child was there somebody who taught you sat you down as a, as a young person and and showed you what to do well um i think I was always interested in making things. My mother knit, and I, I, I have a vague recollection of her teaching me. And I think she, she taught me because I was kind of like this, you know, really active, noisy child. And she thought maybe it would calm me down or stuff. But um, I think there was a, there, um, there was a lot more making going on when I was a child, <clears throat> and I actually 
have a list of all the things that we, not just I, knew how to make. It was just that we did. And a lot of that's been lost. And, you know, some of it's good. It's good that it's lost. But um, I feel like with the challenges that are ahead for kids in the world, in this changing world, that it's really crucial that they know how to make things and do things for themselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's so important because certainly as far as schools are concerned in the UK, this kind of life skill isn't necessarily taught in school. And I learned to sew through my grand- grandmother and having a teacher who was very crafty and would sit and do special groups at school. And it's so important to have that, you know, to be exposed to it at a young age, isn't it? I think so. And I think that, you know, there is a sense that, um, and I hear it from people all the time, well, you you know, you're you have that talent or something, but you really don't need a talent. And that's what I hope one of the messages of me and the boss is that a lot of times it's just perseverance, you know, to get over that block or whatever it is, and then you're okay. And, you know, or that there's always going to be something. It isn't like, you know, I look at Entrelac and I go, oh yeah, doing it, you know? I mean, you know, (laughs) I mean, you have to, you have to spend time with these kinds of things. And I think that's a really good life lesson also. And really, what's more rewarding than knitting a sock? I mean, it makes you feel like like you, you created this like thing, you know. It's like it's like a gold badge, you know. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I've I've just missed, finished my second pair actually, so I can completely attest to that. <laughs> yeah. It's a huge sense of yeah. achievement. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and people marvel at it you know um i just did a workshop on on saturday with kids that related to the book and um, i know this is you can't see this um on the podcast but it i can show you as i tell what it is so we just did burlap um stitching and i had about you know 10 kids and their moms and their moms also did stitching and like the room got really quiet and like, uh, you know, it was just an hour workshop. And then afterwards, kids were coming up and saying like, can we take this home? Could, could I take another one? You know, could I take some yarn? And it was so, it was just really like, I mean, it had nothing for, for me, like it had everything to do with the book and nothing to do with the book, but like, it felt like a civic like I did something civic minded by um, enabling kids to do that. So, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, well, Michelle, it's been lovely to speak to you. Um, I believe the book is going to be available in the UK as well as where you are in the US. And uh, yes. yeah, it's, it's really, really beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my thanks go to Michelle Edwards and to Claire Hunter for taking the time to speak to me for Making Stitches. I really enjoyed speaking to them both and hearing about their work. 
And this week, I heard that listening to these podcasts really can have a positive impact on your creativity. Every time I release an episode, I ask if you'd mind leaving a rating or review on your favourite podcast platform. And Making Stitches received one recently, which was directly as a result of listening to the last episode I published with Sarah Revington from Stitchdop. A listener known as Cherub60, who is based in the UK, wrote on Apple Podcasts, I always love listening to all the interviews on here. As a crocheter and a knitter, I haven't ventured into sewing, but the latest interview with Stitched Up has inspired me to try. Well, thank you, Cherub60, for that lovely review. Good luck with your sewing adventure. That's almost it for this time, but before I go, I wanted to tell you about a very special charity auction which is taking place soon. If you've been listening for a while, you may remember Olesya Lebedenko, a Ukrainian patchwork quilt designer and maker who now lives in Canada, who I spoke to back in March. Well, Olesya is hosting an online art quilts charity auction to raise much needed funds for organisations supporting both people people and animals in Ukraine who've been dreadfully affected by the war there. The lots are four beautiful art quilts. The auction will run until the 16th of December and you can find a link to the auction in the show notes for this episode. Do please go and have a look at it. While you're there, you can also find links to find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode too. That's all from me for now. Thank you so much for listening. I'm going to be back again in two weeks' time with a special Christmas episode. Until then, do take care, stay safe and enjoy your crafting. <laughs>